digging the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast with LD and TJ2. Welcome to Rock and Roll Heaven, the podcast where we talk about the lives, careers, and deaths of famous musicians. I am your host, LD. Along with me for the ride is Mr. William Hickey and TJ2. Howdy. Howdy. How am you? Hey, we got that three-way going we talked about. And we, we also talked about using that phrase, I remember. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm going to have to go, I, I'm going to have to go bathe with lasso or something now. That was, yeah, that's really, yeah, that's creepy. If you guys don't know, I'm married to Will the Thrill, and TJ2 is my big brother, so... We're not... Yeah, we're from South Carolina, but we're not from, like, Arkansas, so... <laughs> not to disparage anybody from Arkansas. We, yeah. We, we love our... We're not, love our... We're, not quite, we're, not, we're not quite from uh, far enough south for that to actually be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is true. But this is our first uh, cross-coast episode, isn't it? Uh, well... Technically, yes. Uh, so if you guys will notice, there might be a little bit of difference in audio quality that you guys are used to. So sorry, because we're actually having to conduct this on Zoom, which we've never done before. But um, I've never done Zoom before. And to show everybody, because this is only the second time I've ever been on this program, how technically improficient I am. When, when, when LD told me, hey, we're, we'll just do this over Zoom, I said, okay, I'll make my wife make there be the zoom on my phone yeah you've also had like you you didn't get your first cell phone until you were like what 36 it was like something like that yeah yeah i haven't had i haven't had them for very long and i had a flip phone until about five years ago (laughs) (laughs) i mean you got your first cell phone like 2012 seriously didn't you it was it was a little before that but not much yeah yeah i had my 95 96 i had my first cell phone yeah, well, and, but the other thing is that uh, for, for loyal listeners of your program, they know this is my second episode. I did uh, the episode with you on Pat Denizio when you were uh, at home for Christmas. Yep. So having gone back and listened to that recently, I'm trying to figure out what earned me the return invite. Was it like the lack of preparation or the awkward vocal pauses or the inappropriate jokes or the fact that I was drunk by the end of it? I'm trying to figure out what exactly made you go like, yeah, let's, 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 let's have him back. Well, you know, we actually talked to the network and they thought that it was a great idea that we do it with like family, like, because there's not really a, a show based on family. And I think they really liked the dynamic that me and you and Will bring to the table. And my, my guess was my, my, see, that's interesting. Cause my guess was that lots of people said no. <laughs> No, actually, uh, a lengthy list. There was a, li- a long list of people's names that had X's through them, and she was like, "Oh crap, I'm gonna have to ask my brother." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's um, okay. Well, the, I mean, but, and and as we go into this, I'm just gonna point out to everybody, I'm having a beverage. Um, it is uh, ginger ale and vodka and a wedge of lemon, and I'm not just drinking to be drinking. This is relevant to the episode. I am willing to suffer for my craft. Mm. Uh, yeah. And now the question is, mm, boy, I just suffer with every sip. Was that was the preparation of the drink correct? Because that's apparently what makes it. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, it was uh, vodka and ginger ale with a wedge of lemon dropped in from six inches above the glass, but not squeezed. Those are the how you're supposed to make this particular beverage called a handsome Johnny. 
what else goes into it? Uh, that's it. That's it. That's it. That's it's, all. It's the dropping of the lemon that I think is pretty oh, good. The, the, apparently, the dropping of the lemon from uh, from exactly six inches above the glass or the Yeti lowball tumbler, in my case, is apparently key. <laughs> okay, and so for our listeners, just so you guys know, uh, I don't drink at all, and my brother makes up for it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I do my part. My, my, my sister, neither my sister nor my mother drink, but I uh, so I just feel like I need to, you know, take up the slack to support a fine. <laughs> To support fine American companies like Tito's. <laughs> well, okay, so one, uh, just a, a quick sidelight before we jump, actually jump into the, to, to the day's topic. Um, one of the, the finest music journalists um, in the world is a guy named Peter Cooper. He, he's actually uh, from South Carolina, and I, I, I've met Peter and interviewed him several times. But he told me a story once about getting to go to um, see a Packers game at Lambeau. Big sports fan, so that's kind of a bucket list item. And so the people he was with up there took him, and the, the tailgating there apparently starts very early in the morning in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And so he's sitting around a, like a campfire because it's like it's like Wisconsin you know, freezing and crap because it's Wisconsin in December. And this guy pulls out like a giant growler, and he pulls out a, a bottle of Southern Comfort oh. and just turns it up over the tumbler. Then he takes a can of sun drop and pours it on top of that. Oh. And, and Peter and Peter said, "Buddy, I, I'm not um I'm not judging you or anything, but what what are you what are you doing?" And the guy said, "Oh, I, I told my wife I'd only have two drinks today. This is one." <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I mean, I hope he also told his wife he's going to have a severe case of tooth decay because yeah. so and sun drop. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Smell oh god, that, also, that makes every that makes every part of my anatomy hurt. Yes. Oh god. Uh, it's, we found squirt today in a store. We didn't buy it. We didn't buy it, <laughs> but we saw it. Uh, squirt will never sponsor the show. <laughs> and, and I was gonna say, and that that guy had a case of them. Oh god. Hell. <laughs> I should also tell our audience before we jump in. This is the longest intro we've ever had. I'm sorry. <laughs> And uh, I I'm, also, I'm also not going to edit this episode if I can help it, because uh, I don't have the time. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's in its purest form. All right. Yeah. So today uh, for our topic, uh, for this series of four episodes, we are actually going to be talking about people that we have sadly lost due to COVID-19. Um, I know that we, you know, we've uh, lost a lot this is unprecedented times and we do not want to make light of anyone's passing. We certainly want to shine a light on four of the people that we feel like made a huge impact in their, um, their genres. We will be covering, uh, today we have TJ two's, uh, subject mine's Broadway and country. And then, uh, Mr. Will the thrill is jazz, correct? Correct. Yes. So we will be covering four completely separate genres of people. And today, TJ2, who are you covering? Um, well, because um, for those who did not catch the Pat Nanisio episode, for those who don't know, I, um, I'm a newspaper writer for my, um, you know, like pay the bills job. Not that I'm not handsomely remunerated for doing this podcast, but um, <laughs> so I actually wrote like a, a newspapery kind of lead to it. So uh I kind of build up to who it is. 
Okay. Well, if you want me to just like go ahead and read it. Go ahead, sir. Take it away. All right. Uh, when Bonnie Raitt sang the words, I am an old woman, in the opening to her classic song, Angel from, uh, Angel from Montgomery, it sounded so personal and so introspective that many fans probably assumed that she wrote the song herself, but she didn't. In fact, the writer was not old and wasn't even a woman. The lyrics were penned by a man in his early 20s at the time. That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it also doesn't make sense for a career of one of America's greatest songwriters to be launched by a bad movie and salty popcorn. It doesn't make sense for one artist to have inspired as diverse a group as Bob Dylan and Bette Midler, the Black Keys and Casey Musgraves, Johnny Cash and R.E.M. How do songs that often tackle tough issues and view the world through a cynical prism help end the lengthy funk Bill Murray once found himself in? How does someone who barely reached puberty write a song about divorce? How does someone who wasn't there write one of the definitive songs about the plight of Vietnam vets? And how does someone barely in his 20s write one of the most lauded songs ever about elder abandonment? It takes someone willing to listen and observe more than talk. It takes humility. It takes empathy. It took a man named John Prime. That's pretty badass, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. I, I just, because I've seen your script, CJ, and I was astounded at the web of musical connections this guy had. It's yeah, and, and this, is, this is a guy who, if you just uh, listen to the radio and just listen to what's popular, you may not even be familiar with him. But you, you have definitely heard songs he's written that have been covered by other people, and you've, you've certainly heard people that have been influenced by him. So John Prine was born on October 10th, 1946, in the Chicago suburb of Maywood. For those that are familiar with his music, but not his life story necessarily, that location might come as a surprise given his subtle but very noticeable vocal playing. And, and on his early records, it wasn't subtle, actually. It was very noticeable. He was a hillbilly, kind of like I am. Uh, that's owed to the fact that his parents, William Mason Prine, who was a tool and die maker, who served as the president of the local USW, and his mother, Verna Valentine, a homemaker, both hailed from Paradise, Kentucky. The family, which included three other brothers, would often visit Paradise during the summers of Prine's youth. Those experiences oh, hey, would... Hey, I think I see a connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, they would often visit uh, Paradise during the summers of his youth, and those experiences would inspire the song Paradise, which would turn up on his 1971 debut album. Unlike many artists, especially a lot of the artists that you seem to have covered on the Rock and Roll Heaven podcast, LD, um, Prine's early life was not marked by turmoil or strife. You know, a lot of times out of turmoil and bad situations, great art is created. That, that, that kind of seems to be a, a theme that's run through a lot of your podcasts. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, trying but, to actually grapple with like someone who had a half decent childhood. Right. But I mean, by all appearances, he had great parents and he genuinely loved his family. In fact, he usually kept pictures of them on a table on stage when performing up until the end of his life. Oh, that's really oh, wow. sweet. Yeah. Um, he described his mother as being a great storyteller and said his dad shared that trait after, quote, he drank a few beers. <laughs> um, his father was an avid country music fan, so Prine was raised listening to the likes of Jimmy Rogers, the Carter family, Hank Williams, and other stars of the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, there was some musical family lineage as his grandfather, who was a Kentucky coal miner and a part-time preacher, had formerly played with Merle Travis, who uh, co-wrote uh, Ring of Fire for Johnny Cash, and Ike Everly, who I think was the either the father or the grandfather of the Everly brothers. Yeah. Um, 
Prine remembers listening to, uh, remembered listening to music on a beat up old radio that would be mentioned uh, many years later in the song, Sam Stone, that his dad would point toward the South on Saturday nights to get a better reception of the Grand Ole Opry on WSM out of Nashville. Oh, wow. Um, Even during the week, his dad would turn on that radio, have a beer and pour Johnny, as his mother called him, an orange soda. Quote, he talked to me about politics and stuff. Here I was, six years old, Brian remembered. Um, His dad would often take he and his brothers to a bar. Dad would listen to the jukebox and drink a couple of cold ones while the patrons gave the kids nickels to play the pinball machine with. So this this is like an idyllic childhood, it almost sounds like. (laughs) This is what our parents used to do, because like... Uh Mom would take us to the summit, which was a bar, and then they had karaoke yep. and video games, and they'd let us play. Yep, she'd buy us some mozzarella sticks and and let <laughs> us play Pac Man. Was it the crack cork and barrel? The cork yep. and barrel. Yeah. Yep, cork and barrel. Sure was. And then Campbell's truck stop, like that. So like, like remember Terry used to go through that phase where he would take us to the hospital, and we'd yep. have to the hospital. Yes, like, and we'd eat at the hospital. <laughs> Because he said they had really good food. <laughs> yeah. We, so, so we were basically raised on, like, unsalted mashed potatoes. <laughs> that's, like, like, that's, like, all, that's all they would serve you at the hospital cafeteria. Yeah. But, um, but it was a – it was a we were fed. That's the point. Yeah, but we ate. We ate. By Prime's own, own recollection, he was a very poor student in school. But even from a young age, he had a knack that most good writers share of being oddly observant and noticing things that a lot of people overlook. He said, quote, I would go to class and just stare at something like a button on the teacher's shirt, he once told Rolling Stone. She might as well have been up there barking like a dog. I'd have no idea what she was actually talking about. (laughs) Um, Surprisingly, and this is just kind of a little throw in, Prine excelled at gymnastics, much like you did, LD, um, which is which is something he took up at the suggestion of his older brother, Doug. Prime said it was something he had no natural ability in whatsoever, but was nonetheless something that he did well. What he could also do well from an early age was write songs in particular, despite not having a lot of interest in school books. Yeah, well, when he was, there's where the, the everything, everything you've said so far, I've been like, this is me. The story of LD. The story of LD. <laughs> By TJ2. <laughs> yep. Um, but... <laughs> I want, you to, I want you to really listen to this. When he was 14 years old, Prine wrote the songs Sour Grapes and The Frying Pan, both of which ended up on his second studio album, Diamonds in the Rough, 10 years later. Holy crap. So, so not yet old enough to have a driver's permit, he penned the lines, I couldn't care less if I didn't have a friend, except people would say I was crazy. I wouldn't work because I don't need the money, except the same folks would say I was lazy. Say sour grapes, you can laugh and stare. Say sour grapes, but I don't care. And I came home from work this evening. There was a note in the frying pan. It said, fix your own supper, babe. I run off with the fuller brush man. And I miss the way she used to yell at me, the way she used to cuss and moan. And if I ever go out and get married again, I'll never leave my wife at home. He was Fort friggin' teen. He wrote that. I I look at things I wrote, you know, four weeks ago, and I'm like, this is trash. (laughs) See, I'm trying to think if I'd written a song when I was 14, it would have sounded like Barney the Purple-Ass Dinosaur. Like, I love you, you love me, we're best friends. TJ, can we just just, uh, recenter this conversation on the fact that somewhere in your possession, 
is a list of 700 ways to talk about vomit. To say vomit, yep. Yeah, yeah. We, for a while, uh, Will the Thrill, um, LD and I worked on something called the Big Book of Bodily Functions. Oh, yes. It was, it was something like five, six, seven hundred ways to say puke and 200 ways to say poop and I, I don't I can't remember several hundred ways to say fart and burp and all this kind of stuff I mean we were we were eloquent at 14 I think that's yes. when we made the video for Bohemian Rhapsody right yes show me that this is somewhere. And, and then I came up with the phrase your stomach is rubber the potty is glue <laughs> <laughs> we were Shakespeare Shakespearean, yes. We were, we we were we were yeah we were really close to John. We were really just. We we're, were, it's, I mean, it's like it's like Prime TJ to LD, like in that order. Ah, yeah. Yep. And then and then like Dylan and Christopherson and who the hell else ever. Um, he was also playing guitar by this time. In a 2018 NPR interview with Terry Gross, Prime recalled teaching himself to finger pick while trying to emulate the blues, country, and folk stylings of Elizabeth Cotton and Mississippi John Hurt. He said, quote, when I was 14 years old, I'd sit in the closet in the dark in case I ever went blind to see if I could still play, Prime said. Cheese and crackers. Yeah. Um, he also said, weird. he said in that interview, it was a good thing that he learned to play without being able to see his fingers or the guitar as his belly had gotten so big, he could no longer see himself playing anyway, which kind of starts to give you a little peek into the humor that comes through a lot of his songs, despite the sometimes dark themes that he tackled. Hmm. Um, huh. Still, Prime told CBS this morning in 2019 that he really didn't learn to play the guitar properly until he was 17. Aside from those dark closet sessions, he said he realistically could play about two chords. He said he and his brother liked to play Rebel Rouser by Dwayne Eddy. That was their, one of their big ones. Um, when his brother Doug took up the fiddle, he needed somebody who could play rhythm guitar with him. So Prine poured himself into the instrument a bit more at that time and apparently got pretty good at it. The, the funny thing about Prine, the, the more I read about him and the more interviews I watched, he is very self-effacing. I mean... Uh, the, we're going to get into the, the list of people who consider him, you know, the greatest songwriter ever. Chris Christopherson at one point said, if God had a favorite songwriter, it's John Prine. Okay, so that's saying quite a bit, but he, he, he always talked down his own abilities. He was uh, tickled to death in one interview. I saw that there, there are YouTube videos that say like, learn to pick like John Prine. And he was like, well, why would anybody want to do that? <laughs> he didn't, um, but in fact, he said that um, his, like all of his songs, he, he thought sounded a lot alike. He said, I could try to play in a God of and it would still sound like paradise. <laughs> so, so a very humble, very self-effacing dude. I mean, from even from an early age, um, it sounds like. Um, upon graduating from high school, Prine took um, his brother Doug's advice and got a job as a mailman. Those observational skills that he seemed to be born with and which were likely fostered by both of his parents served him well then, as did his natural gift of crafting lyrics. He wrote a number of songs that would go on to be considered classics while delivering the mail and would usually actually write them in his own head. He said, quote, I wrote a lot of my first album on the mail route because there's not much else to do on a mail route, he told NPR in 2017. The best way to write a song is to think of something else and then the song kind of creeps in. The beginning makes no sense whatsoever. It's just like rhymes. And then all of a sudden I'll go into, I'm an old woman named after my mother. Um, 
apparently if when you delivered the mail back then they actually had these really giant these huge boxes that if it was raining you could stop at and put your mail in so it wouldn't get wet uh, sometimes he said he would just sit in those and, and, and scribble down lyrics <laughs> which i thought was pretty interesting um I wonder they still have those i you know i, I don't think so um because i well because you know now most mail carriers are in jeeps or trucks or, or cars or whatever and i think back then like they actually had like a giant satchel over their back and walked the route for the most part oh wow okay yeah so if it was raining you needed somewhere to kind of stick your mail so it wouldn't get you know soaking wet or whatever right uh in a grammys interview along with artist sturgill simpson um a couple of years ago prine said his songwriting was influenced uh, the most by chuck berry actually and also by the bluegrass music that he grew up listening to he said his early songs, quote, had a very high body count, <laughs> like those bluegrass tunes that he heard in his youth, ones where he said, quote, a guy would drag his wife down by the river, drown her, shoot her, and then go back to his mom's house wearing a bloody T-shirt and think he had a great day. Wow. Which, if you've listened to a lot of old bluegrass songs, is actually pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, fair. Horrific, mm-hmm. but fair. Yeah. I mean, because if you think of, like, Something like old country and bluegrass songs, like Green Green Grass of Honey. Oh, that's a, such a pretty song. It's like, yeah, no, it's really not. Read the lyrics. <laughs> it's like there's a lot of people dying in those songs. Um, that's like that's like contemporaries would be like Nick Cave, right? Nick Cave and the Bad Seed. And... Somebody like that, right? Yeah, okay. Um, so in late 1966, Prime's career as a mailman took a brief and unplanned detour when he was drafted into the army. Um. This was during a time when the conflict in Vietnam and America's role in it were beginning to escalate. Um, so if you got drafted, then you probably had a pretty bad feeling about where you were going. You know, Luckily for Prine, he wasn't sent to the front lines of combat in Vietnam. He was instead sent to West Germany, where he worked as a mechanical engineer. He apparently didn't speak much or very highly of his service, telling Rolling Stone at one time that his contributions mainly consisted of, quote, drinking beer and pretending to fix trucks. Ah. Um, but, you know, maybe, and, and we'll get into this in a little bit as his first album comes out and, and there's a song on it that's, you know, one of his more famous. I think seeing guys who did go to Vietnam, who didn't get the break of being sent to West Germany, or, or, or to other places where there was an active combat going on, I think he, because he, he, he had a lot of empathy, he took note of that, you know, and, and he, he, he saw that he knew that he was lucky. You know, he knew that I hate to, to use the phrase, but that he dodged a bullet. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So once he returned home, uh, he had actually married his high school sweetheart and Carol before being sent overseas. Because Brian resumed his did. work in mail delivery but he also began performing in public for the first time, hitting an open mic night at a bar called The Fifth Peg in Chicago, which was a gathering spot for music teachers and their students from the nearby Old Town School of Folk. 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 I said that word funny. <laughs> Gotta be careful when you say folk and you're drinking a handsome Johnny. Here's that drink, honey. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, but... Uh, but that's the, there were there was a uh, a school called the Old Town School of Folk where Prine actually himself went to hone his picking, and a lot of the students and teachers from there would would kind of tumble into this bar late at night. Now supposedly Prine's first performance there came after an 
oh, you think you can do better challenge from another performer. And as an aside to whomever that fellow might have been who said that to John Prine, um, since you aren't Bob Dylan, I assure you that John Prine did, in fact, do it better than you did. <laughs> Just saying. After his first appearance, Prine was paid to make a weekly performance there. And I want y'all to listen to the sweet deal he got. He got half the house cover charge. How about that's, that? That's, For everybody that came in. That's pretty darn good. Half the house. Yeah, it sounds like a generous cut until you realize it cost 50 cents to get into the place. <laughs> So he got a quarter for every person who showed up, basically. Well, then you, Still, you bring in a thousand people. What do you want? Right. Well, no, he, he said he normally brought in about 12. And this is 1967, 66? Uh, this is a very late 60s, right, right about 1970 at this point. I mean, granted, a quarter is still a quarter, but I think it went a little further in 1960. It, it did go a little further, but, you know, his hobby was making him a couple of extra bucks. There you go. But yeah. even at this point, he, he really had no designs on pursuing music as a full-time profession. This is when fate intervene, uh, intervened, or rather, where the aforementioned salty popcorn and shitty movie changed the course of his life. <laughs> um, in October of 1970, Roger Ebert, who was then the movie reviewer for the Chicago Sun-Times, was watching a film that he was going to review for the entertainment section of that week's newspaper. And I think back then on Fridays is when they ran the big weekend entertainment section in the Chicago Sun-Times and in most newspapers, I think. Um, in several interviews, Prine recalled subsequent meetings with Ebert where the reviewer detailed for him that the movie he was watching was lousy and the theater's popcorn was extremely oversalted. So he actually he actually left the screening of the film early, and he did so with a dry mouth. So he decided to grab a beer. So he stopped into a place called The Fifth Peg. <laughs> Someone at the bar told him that he should go to the back room and check out the country folk guy who was playing and was assured that, quote, the kids' songs are better than that movie Ebert did. Huh. Roger wrote about Roger wrote about me instead of the movie the next day, Prine told NPR in 2017. The Chicago Sun-Times from October 9, 1970, featured a back-page review of Ebert headlined, The Singing Mailman Who Delivers a Powerful Message in Few Words. Hmm. Huh. A, por a portion of that review reads, He appears on stage with such modesty, he almost seems to be backing into the spotlight. He sings rather quietly, and his guitar work is very good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow, but after a song or two, even the drunks in the room begin to, real, to listen to the lyrics. And then he has you, Ebert wrote. And you have to keep in mind, this is a completely different world. This is 50 years ago. There's not an internet. There's no Twitter or Facebook or any of that kind of stuff. So newspapers still carried a, had a lot of power to influence things. And if Roger freaking Ebert wrote a music review about some guitar picker, it was kind of a big deal. I want to know what the movie was. I, I looked and looked, and I could not find it. I tried my best <laughs> to find it. It was apparently just a crappy movie from, like, 1970. So, other than Star Wars, a lot. Mm -hmm. and so, but, but, I mean, this, this is something. Ebert never finished the film, correct? <laughs> Right, right, right. He didn't even, he didn't even, he never wrote a review about it. He didn't see the end of it. He left. It sucked. <laughs> it sucked and he was thirsty. <laughs> so, but see, you could probably talk about this even, even more, LD, because I mean, you've studied the, the, the history of theater and film and all this stuff. Um, 
if if you got a big review in a newspaper in the night in like in nineteen seventy, that was a huge deal. That made a big difference then. Oh yeah, because that was that was one of the the trimediums is like you had television, you had you had movies, and then you had newspaper and radio. So those those were your those were your four types of uh you know informational outlets. And so right. you get your music from the radio, you get all your other information from either the TVs, because at this point they weren't doing the newsreels in front of the, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, they're the not movies, doing right. because TV had become a larger medium within the sixties. And it, so kind of, it was like a larger, it, it was a larger medium, but we have to remember in 1970, especially in rural areas like we were from, not everybody even had a TV. That's true. But then you always had the radio, which, sure. which, you know, has always, since its advent, has maintained a, a precedent in reporting. Like, we, I mean, I still listen, like, I, it probably comes to no shock to any of our listeners that I still listen to AM. <laughs> like, I don't really listen to FM radio. I only listen to AM radio. Yeah. And other podcasts, and that's pretty much it. So, like, it's it hasn't been until the advent of the internet where we had things like Twitter, where we could get, where, where literally I found out a couple hours after Wilford Brimley had died that he died. Right. You know, and what's, hap what's happened today in RIP Wilford Brimley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're, we're actually as, 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 uh, today as we record this, obviously. Yes. yes. Um, because there, there were, there were a lot, there, there were much fewer gatekeepers i guess is the word i'm looking for you know right now you could tweet something or put it on facebook or instagram or whatever and and, and thousands of people can see it in a few minutes literally um, when we had the earthquake which was not a pleasant thing to wake up to i can I, imagine not i literally tweeted the word earthquake at like 4 30 in the morning and then you texted me like four minutes later and you're like i saw your tweet and i'm like i'm fine yeah <laughs> you know um but but there were but you know but now anybody can throw something online up online and thousands of people can see it in a few seconds. It wasn't like that fifty years ago. No, probably the majority of households may not even have had a television at that point. So if you got a big back page review written by Roger Ebert in a big major daily newspaper, that was a big deal. Yeah, and he's a, a really trusted, big deal. It's a trusted source, right? To supersede and, his for someone to supersede what he typically talks about, that would be like us doing an episode on, I don't know, an episode of The Sopranos. Right. You know, it's, it's like something that is not in our technical wheelhouse, and we just take a divergence into that. Yeah. Um, the, the review from Ebert went on to marvel at Prine's turn of a phrase in his biting lyrics. He said the song Sam Stone, which is about a morphine-addicted Vietnam vet, which actually went by a different title at the time, quote, says more about the last 20 years in America than any dozen adolescent acid rock peace dirges. Hmm. And he cited the line, quote, there's a hole in the arm, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes, and Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. Quote, you hear lyrics like that, perfectly fitted to Prime's quietly confident style and his ghost of a Kentucky accent, and you wonder how anyone could have so much empathy and still be looking forward to his 24th birthday. Oh, wow. Pretty lofty praise. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, after that review ran, interest in Prine spiked. He started playing three nights a week instead of one night a week, and the house was not only full every night, but there was a line outside the door every night he played. He started playing shows at the Earl of Old Town and was paid $1,000 a week under the table to do so. Ooh, nice. That seemed like all the money in the world to someone who was taking home less than $500 a month delivering the mail. Yeah, that's insane. He said, quote, my goal was getting out of the post office. I was a mailman walking in the snow six days a week, 12-hour days. I thought, this is heaven. Once I got out, I was king of the hill. I slept late all week and made $1,000 a week. I didn't care if I never did anything else. I was a total 100% success. With Buzz starting to build, he attracted the attention of other songwriters. One of those, uh, whose name I'm actually going to withhold for just a minute, urged his friend Chris Christofferson to go to a prime show in Chicago. It was late and the Earl was closed when the two arrived, but the door was still unlocked. So the two men came in and found Prime waiting around to get paid. They, uh, at their urging, Prime pulled out his guitar and played. Chris Christofferson, who at the time, his career was exploding. He was already being acknowledged as one of the best songwriters in the world, recalled, quote, by the end of the first line, we knew we were hearing something else. It must have been like stumbling onto Bob Dylan when he first busted out onto the village scene. So Chris Christofferson, upon hearing a line of the first song that he heard by the guy, compared him to Bob Dylan. I'm just going to kind of let that just sit and marinate for a second while I drink some more of this handsome Johnny. Mm. Chris Christofferson is one of those people that I'm going to be really sad to do an episode on. But that man is been, like he's a Rhodes Scholar, Golden Gloves boxer, yep. Academy Award winner, Grammy winner. Grammy yep. winner like, yep. You look at his life and you're like, crap, I have done nothing with my I, life. I suck. I suck as a human being. Because <laughs> well, think well, about I, this. He, I think we're going to have him for a while because he can probably talk death out of taking him a few times. Yeah. Sure, uh, definitely. But you think about, think, I want you to think about this. Uh, you think about all of his, what he stands for and his political stances and stuff. But I want you to think about the fact that give, even in spite of all that, he volunteered to go to Vietnam. Yes, he did. Volunteered. And was told, no, 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 you're far too valuable. We need you teaching at West Point. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know how you can't respect the dude. Didn't he steal a helicopter? Wasn't that the story? Yeah. And so, with Johnny okay. Yeah. Okay, so this, okay, so this goes back to, to the fellow named Peter Cooper I mentioned at the very beginning because I asked him about this one time when I interviewed him. Johnny Cash alleges that Chris Christopherson, quote, commandeered a helicopter <laughs> from the National Guard Armory which is a nice way of saying stole. He jacked it, yeah. <laughs> and flew it to Johnny Cash's house, landed it in his backyard, and he got out holding a beer in one hand and a cassette tape in the, in the other and handed Cash the cassette tape, right? <laughs> so Cooper told me he had interviewed Christopherson once and asked him about that, and that Chris said, you know, it, um, it took two hands to fly a helicopter at that time, so, uh, you know, Johnny exaggerated a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the best Christopherson I can do, but, you know. <laughs> See, um, our family is just full of people who can do incredible imitations. Like Yeah, that was, that was just a, that was a, that was a spot-on imitation of Chris Christopherson. It's like he was <laughs> hacking into this Zoom session. People yep. into that section think we're interviewing Chris Christopherson. <laughs> 
If he'd like to hack into the Zoom session, our oh, code is 11Y4CZ. <laughs> <laughs> Jump on it, Chris. Um, Prime said, quote, there is nobody in the world I would rather have been playing my songs for at the time. When asked was going, well, what was going through his mind as he was playing for Chris Christopherson, he joked, beer. <laughs> Which may not actually have been a joke. Because <laughs> he said he often had to have a couple of beverages before he started singing for people back then. Yeah, fair. <clears throat> um, Prine was soon offered a one-album deal with Delmar Records, but the deal called for him to only do a few of his own compositions and a number of covers. It's odd that any deal would not have focused more on Prine's own songs and just put emphasis on his singing, since Prine really didn't like the sound of his own voice then. He recalled wanting to run out of the studio when listening to his vocal playbacks in the studio on early recordings. So he ultimately passed on that deal. Christofferson ended up offering Prine a chance to open for him at a club date in New York, though. An Atlantic Records executive was in the audience, and Prine signed with Atlantic at 10 o'clock the next morning. <laughs> oh, cheese and crackers. Yeah. Wow. So there was a guy named Jerry Wexler, who's apparently a pretty legendary yeah. record executive. He was sitting in the, the audience, and he watched Prine do three songs, which is all the time he was allotted, and that was all he needed to hear. And he signed in the next morning. Fair enough. Um, in 1971, Prine's self-titled debut album was released, and for fans of Prine and his style of music, it almost serves as a greatest hits package. There is Hello in There, which captured the loneliness and pain of an aging couple. Now, he delivered mail on his routes to a Baptist retirement home, but uh, in, his youth, in his youth, he also uh, worked a paper route with a friend. And doing so didn't just entail dropping off a bunch of papers when you got to this Baptist retirement home. You actually walked to each individual room and had to hand the, the, the people their newspaper. He said, that, he said that the people that he saw would actually pretend that he was their grandson or nephew who would come to see them because they're actually fa their actual families rarely did. Oh, God, that sucks. Yeah, he told CBS this morning uh, he was also very close to all of his grandparents and that he always naturally gravitated towards older people. There was the song Illegal Smile, which contrary to popular belief is not about smoking weed. Prine said it was about how he always smiled and laughed at things that other people didn't find funny, but he allowed, quote, it was such a good anthem for dope smokers that I didn't want to have to stop every time I played it and make a disclaimer. So he just <laughs> never corrected anybody. He's like, hey, if you think it's about weed, sure, why not? I don't care. Um, there was your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore, which takes a little bit of a jab at uh, patriotism. Prime conceptualized it again while delivering the mail as he saw American flag decals that were inside Reader's Digest magazines all over the suburbs where he worked. It's a, it's a funny song if you've ever heard it, but it also contains the line, but your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. We're already overcrowded from your dirty little war. Now, Jesus don't like killing no matter what the reason's for, and your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. Um, probably the best known song from his debut album was Angel from Montgomery, which starts with the line I mentioned at the outset, I am an old woman. When Prine was asked about adopting such a unique point of view for a song, he simply said that no one ever told him he could. Authors create characters, so he didn't see why songwriters couldn't do the same thing, and he frequently tried to look at the world through the eyes of others. In this case, those were the eyes of an unhappy middle-aged woman who felt older than her years, 
wanted out of her life, out of her marriage, and hoped, quote, an angel from Montgomery would take her away from her misery. Um, he told, I, I've seen a, an interview where he talked about writing this song. Uh, a buddy of his who was a songwriter said, hey, let's, let's write a, um, a, another song about um, old people. And Brian said, ah, you know, I've kind of already said everything I wanted to say about that, you know, in that song I wrote called Hello in there. And the guy was like, no, no, come on, let's do it. And Brian said, okay, well, let's do one about a middle-aged woman who actually feels older than she is. And the friend thought about it for a second and said, no, that sucks. We don't need to do that. <laughs> so, but Prime did it himself, and it turned into Angel from Montgomery. Wow. Um, he figures that Montgomery came into play because of his affinity for the work of Hank Williams. Of course, the country legend grew up there. He said a lot of people, because he grew up in Chicago, thought it was because there is an angel gargoyle on the Montgomery Ward building in Chicago. But he said that, that has nothing to do with the, the nexus of the song. Hmm. Um, he also said, quote, there is no gender when it comes to being a writer. So he, he just, he felt comfortable taking on, uh, you know, the, a character, even if it was a middle-aged woman or an old couple or anybody else. Um, the song Paradise, which actually speaks against the practice of strip mining, would be adopted by env environmentalists as kind of an anthem. Uh, despite the subject matter, the song paints a picture of paradise, which Prime remembered as having two general stores and not much else as an idyllic place. He told CBS this morning, quote, us kids all saw paradise through our dad's eyes and that his dad loved taking his kids there. He largely wrote the song, uh, he told CBS this morning, so his dad would know that he was actually a songwriter. So basically once Prime got to where he could pick and sing pretty well, he would play Hank Williams and Roy Acuff songs for his dad, who we've already talked about was a huge, you know, like old country fan. But he wanted his old man to realize that he could craft his own tunes. So um, he said his dad, who was mentioned in the song Paradise, uh, really liked it. Now, the one thing you'll find if you read a lot about Prine or watch interviews, he's given to exaggeration at times, except when he talks about himself. He talks down his own singing, playing, and songwriting pretty often. His brother, uh, Billy, who's a couple of years younger than Prime, who Prime would often describe as, quote, being almost seven feet tall and two feet taller than me, despite the fact that he was six feet, six, six and not even a foot taller than John Prine was, um, said that their father was genuinely touched the first time Prime played in Paradise. He told American songwriter, quote, my father was speechless. It was the most emotional look I've ever seen on my dad's face. And I think this is a good time to to check out uh, our first musical offering from Mr. Prine. So let's uh, take a stop here and listen to the song Paradise from John Prine's uh, self-titled debut album. All right, here we go. When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are warm And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away Well, sometimes we travel right down the Green River to the abandoned old prison down by Avery Hill 
Where the air smelled like snakes And we'd shoot with our pistols But empty pop bottles Was all we would kill And daddy won't you take me Back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River Where paradise lay Well I'm sorry my son But you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold train Has hauled it away Then the coal company came with the world's largest shovel And they tortured the timber and stripped all the land Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken Then they rode it all down as the progress of man And daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lay Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. When I die, let my ashes float down the Green River. Let my soul roll on up to the Rochester Dam. I'll be halfway to heaven with paradise waiting. Just five miles away from wherever I am And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County Down by the Green River where paradise lays Well, I'm sorry, my son, but you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold train has hauled it away Nice. Hey, we like me and me and uh, Mr. Thrill here literally looked at each other and was like, "Yep, that's like Dylan." That's Dylan, yeah. That's Dylan. Yeah, it or or almost kind of like a hillbilly James Taylor, sort of. Oh, twinges of it. I mean, a little, yeah. I do. I definitely do like in in that that classic singer songwriter vein. No, yeah, no doubt. And I I really like the almost threading in of that like bluegrass slash Celtic music. Yeah. It's it's neat. It's unique. It's very which, which is which is so funny because later in life he um, actually would spend part of each year in Ireland. Funny that you mentioned that. Oh, but we'll we'll get to that a little later. Looking at me okay. knowing stuff. <laughs> um, okay, so the first album did not make a big splash commercially. Uh, it didn't crack the Billboard Hot 100 album chart, but it was a critical success. Rolling Stones review read in part, "Quote." This is a very good first album by a very good songwriter. Good songwriters are on the rise, but John Prine is differently good. His work demands some time and thought from the listener. He's not out to write pleasant tunes. He wants to arrest the cursory listener and get attention for some important things he has to say. And thankfully, he says them without falling into the common trap of writing with overtones of self-importance or smugness. Uh, The Village Voice gave the album an A rating. Other artists certainly took note of Prine's uh, early work. Carly Simon covered Angel from Montgomery less than a year after Prine's album debut. I do remember that version of that, the Carly Simon. Okay, see, I, I, I'd never actually heard Carly Simon's version of that. Um, that was the one I had actually heard first. 
Okay. Until more recently, I'd not I'd not heard it. Um, though it's been covered by dozens of artists over year uh, over the years, probably the best known and loved version remains Bonnie Raitt's 1974 mm-hmm. cover. She told Performing uh, Songwriter magazine in 2000 that the song quote probably meant more to my fans and my body of work than any other song. Which you know you're talking about the person who sang uh, I can't make you love me and something to talk about and Nick of Time, and she says that's the one pretty much. In her body of work and to her fan base. I believe she is the only woman to have a specifically designed Fender guitar. Yep. Named after she her. sure is. Yep. Yeah. She is. Having seen her in concert, she certainly should. <laughs> that gum she can pick. Yeah, but it's um, a shame that she's the only one. She shouldn't be the only one. No, there, there are plenty. Nancy Wilson should have one. I, I mean, just oh, don't yeah, stop yeah. my head. Yeah. Um, um, Paradise was covered by Johnny Cash. John Fogarty, the Everly Brothers, and Dwight Yoakam, among many others. Sam Stone was a song that Payne wrote on his mail route in his head. When he got home, he thought like he had something good. He frantically looked for some paper to jot the lyrics down on, but he couldn't find any. So he scribbled them on three cardboard uh, inserts from packs of pantyhose, because that's the only thing he could find to write them down on. Um... When Prime was drafted, he was initially sent to a base in Louisiana and made to, quote, crawl around the swamp. So you can, as we kind of already touched on, you, you can imagine where he figured he was going at the time. Um, he, of course, he ended up in Germany. He said, quote, I'm still dancing over that one. Okay. Um, but five of his friends did end up going to the war zone. Now, all five of them actually did make it home, but he said that none were ever the same. He said that was the basis of the song Sam Stone, which was voted the eighth saddest song ever written in a Rolling Stone Reader's Poll. Um, it's wait, been wait, recorded. Wait, wait, wait. What, what do you think the saddest song is, in your opinion? <sighs> oh, God. He stopped loving her today, maybe. Okay. Well, maybe Tears in Heaven, Eric Clapton. I'm going to have to go Clarence Carter, Patches. Ooh. Oh, God. Yeah, Patches is pretty bad. That's my job by Conway Twitty, maybe. Uh, Holes in the Floors of Heaven or um, Love Me. Is that Colin Ray? Love Me? Yeah. Where yeah. So, Steve, uh, yeah, Steve Warner did Holes in the Floor of Heaven. Colin Ray was Love Me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, those are all pretty maudlin. Sam Stone, if you've never heard it, is pretty damn sad, though. <laughs> it's right up there. Definitely. Um, um, the, the, the funny thing was I, I saw um, – a dual interview where he, it, I, I saw a couple. There's one I saw where it was he and Bill Murray being interviewed. And there's one that was he and Sturgill Simpson being interviewed. And I don't remember which one it was, but he was talking about that song. And he said that um, the first time he performed it, he, he, he thought, I think this is good, but I'm not sure. It's pretty sad. There's a line that we'll talk about in a minute that was considered pretty provocative, uh, especially for 1971. So he, he, he was a little unsure, but he goes up there and he plays it. And he said he finished playing the song, and the audience just sat there and looked at him. And, he, and his exact quote was, well, shit, that must have been worse than I thought. <laughs> but it's just, it's so sad. The first time you would hear it, I can't imagine the reaction you would have to it, you know? Hang on, what, um, is, it, which, what is the name again? It's called Sam Stone. Okay, hang on. You know what? I'm, I'm calling an audible. Uh-oh. I'm calling an audible. Sam Blue 42. Stone. Blue 42. Blue 42. Sam Stone. Hang on. Because I, I want to. 
I want, I, this is a genuine reaction. I've never heard this song. I'm the one that careful gets incredibly you. emotional when I listen to stuff. So hold mm. on, listen. Mm. Careful what you wish for, L Day. Let's see what happens, okay? Okay. Here we go. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas. And the time that he served had shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel in his knee. But the morphine eased the pain and the grass grew around his brain and gave him all the confidence he lacked with a purple heart and a monkey on his back there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes Jesus Christ died for nothing I suppose little pitchers have big ears don't stop to count the years sweet songs never last too long on Broken radios mm -hmm. Sam Stone's welcome home Didn't last too long He went to work when he'd spent his last dime And Sammy took to stealing When he got that empty feeling For a hundred dollar habit Without overtime And the gold rolled through his veins Like a thousand railroad trains Neased his mind in the hours that he chose While the kids ran around wearing other people's clothes There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes Jesus Christ died for nothing I suppose Little pitchers have big ears Don't stop to count the years Sweet songs never last too long On broken radios mm -hmm. Sam Stone alone when he popped his last balloon climbing walls while sitting in a chair well he played his last request while the room smelled just like dead with an overdose hovering in the air but life had lost its fun Far flag draped casket on a local hero's hill. There's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes. 
mix up another handsome johnny on that one y'all i mean it's okay maybe i'm maybe i'm a jerk maybe i've got a heart of stone but i'm like that's more disturbing to me than really sad it's like yeah it's like a protest for something that's already happened it's like uh, well but you also but you also have to view it through the prism of it being 1971 when it came out but you know what i mean it's like we're, we're a tad jaded by this point. Uh, imagine how different that would have sounded 50 years ago. I mean, that's, that, that, that would have been a gut punch. People didn't do, there weren't a ton of songs like that back then. I mean, Dylan probably did, I'm sure did some, and there were a few others, but not many. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a heavy song. It's, it's literally, yeah. not, but I think what it is, is it's not, here's the thing where um it's, uh, here's the thing when it comes to like sad songs, not to get too much off on a tangent, but yeah, when, when you have a sad song, something like tears in heaven or, uh, he stopped loving her today. Like when you had those songs, we humanize them. We, right. we, we, we have felt that way before where it's not a normal feeling for most of us to understand what it feels like to come back from war a completely broken person addicted to heroin right and abandoning your family and you know starting petty theft like we it's it's a depressing song yeah but it's hard to not empathize but connect with that Sure, yeah, but if you haven't been there and, and done that. But, but, but that's, but that's, that's one, kind of one of his gifts is that he wasn't there and he didn't live that, but he still wrote a song that's considered one of the definitive, you know, veteran uh, songs. And, and I don't know that anybody at, the, at that point would have been writing about uh, post-traumatic stress dis- disorder and a vet, you know, veterans addicted to drugs and all that kind of stuff. I, oh, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I don't know if anybody else had done that at that point. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to take away from the fact that it is a powerful song. Mm. It's incredibly impactful. It's incredibly like it's 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 a very very good song. Don't yeah. let me take that away from it. I'm just saying it's hard for me to uh, connect with it on that level. Sure. Right. Um, well, the song was actually uh, covered. Uh, later by a number of artists, most notably Johnny Cash. Now, if you, and you could totally hear Cash singing that. Yeah. But if you've heard the Man in Black's version, you know that the lyrics were altered just a little bit. Prine explained to Rolling Stone that Cash was perhaps the only person he would ever have allowed to alter one of the songs. Prine said that Cash, Cash was working with their mutual friend, Cowboy Jack Clement in the studio and wanted to record Sam Stone. Famously devout in his Christian faith, Cash had a little bit of problem with the line, and Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. He said, quote, he didn't feel comfortable singing that line. I said, well, you know, it's the heart of the song for me. It's everything in the song kind of fell out of that one line. 
I know where I'm coming from when I say that. It means there's no hope. If a veteran's going to come home and be treated like that and nobody's going to help him with his drug habit, then what's the use of living? However, Prine did allow Cash to make an adjustment, changing the line in question to, Daddy must have hurt a lot back then, I suppose. He said, quote, I figured it's Johnny Cash. All I know is he's singing my song. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. He, he said that Cash was, quote, like Abraham Lincoln to me. Um, and the two had a little bit of a mutual admiration society as Cash listed Prine among his, quote, big four all time of songwriters. Wow. Um, Pink Floyd did not cover Sam Stone, but it has been noted that the song The Post-War Dream from the 1983 album The Final Cut bears a very strong resemblance to Sam Stone, sharing its chord progression, instrumentation, melody, and key. The opening line of the song can also be seen as an allusion to Prine's composition as it says, tell me true, tell me why was Jesus crucified? Is it for this that daddy died? Mm. Roger Waters was an unabashed Prine fan and eventual friend. Huh. In a 2008 interview with Word magazine, Waters was asked if he could hear Pink, Flo uh, Pink Floyd's influence on bands like Radiohead. He responded, quote, I don't really listen to Radiohead. I listened to the albums and they just didn't move me in the way that, say, John Prine does. His is just extraordinarily eloquent music. And he lives on that plane with Neil Young and John Lennon. So, huh. Roger had a pretty high opinion of John Bryan. I would say so. Um, Hello in There has been covered by John Denver, Joan Baez, Bette Midler, and David Allen Coe. Speaking of, speaking of the latter, let's circle back to that songwriter who insisted that his buddy Chris Christopherson go check out Bryan in Chicago. That was a man named Steve Goodman. Now, even if you aren't familiar with him, first of all, you should be. He wrote City of New Orleans amongst many other great songs, but you've almost certainly heard his name. In the song, You Never Even Called Me By My Name, Coe famously breaks into a recitation midway through the proceedings and says, well, a friend of mine named Steve Goodman wrote that song, and he told me it was the perfect country and western song. I wrote him back a letter and told him it was not the perfect country and western song because he hadn't said anything about mama or trains or trucks or prison or getting drunk. And then he, of course, launches into the, the verse that begins, well, I was drunk the day my mom got out of prison. Um, as a personal aside, I should note that I and my groomsmen sang that song at uh, my wedding reception because I am nothing if not on point <laughs> and, a product before, and a product before I grew up. Oh, my God. Well, everybody, like, you you know what kind of night at karaoke it was when someone uh -huh. did that song, mm -hmm. because it you know it was a call and answer. Yeah, Dave did it, didn't he? Uh, Sexy Dave did do it, yeah. I think. It it was it was uh, it was me and all my groomsmen sang that at our wedding reception. If you remember, LD. No, I think Sexy Dave sang it at my birthday party. Oh, uh, did he? Okay, he did. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, yep. Yep. Which I might, I might, I might edit this out uh, later, but I think that was the same night he actually peed in my cat's litter box. Okay, all right, so, so somebody I'm kin to got drunk and sang a David Allen Coe song, yeah? That, that's okay. right. Why not? And you're sure. in a cat litter box. Yep. Exactly, and then peed, and then peed in your litter box. That, that sounds plausible. Um, <laughs> the, um, 
Oh, that, that, okay, so you never even called me by my name is credited to Steve Goodman. But most people did not know until his obituary mentioned it many years later that John Prine co-wrote that song with Goodman. But he, chose not, but he chose not to claim songwriting credit because he said, quote, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> the, the two actually wrote it as a lighthearted spoof of stereotypical country songs. Prine yeah. said he, he loved country music and didn't want to mock it, so he just left his name off of it. As Coe's version became a monster hit, he said that Goodman called him one day and said, um, you sure you don't want your name on it? Um, Goodman, who is, a, by all accounts, a, a, just a very great, just a great human being, took a portion of the sizable royalties he received from that smash hit and bought Prime a 1942 Wurlitzer jukebox as a gift. Prime said that Goodman and Christofferson were the two most generous people he ever met not just in the music business, but period in his life. And pretty much his career, you want to think that somebody's as talented as him would have been discovered eventually. Um, but the review from, but there, there are very talented people who that for whom that break never comes. So the, the Ebert review was probably a huge part of it. And Steve Goodman telling Chris Christopherson, who was a big fan of Goodman, well, if you think my songs are good, you, you need to go check out my buddy John Prine. Without without those three, Ebert, Christopherson, and Goodman, we, we probably aren't even doing a podcast on John Prine right now, hmm. honestly. Um, some hailed Prine after his first album as, quote, the next Dylan, which is flattering enough for a songwriter. But get this, in an early show that Prine played in New York, Bob Dylan himself made an unannounced appearance singing background and playing harmonica on stage with Prine. The, the capper to that story is that Prine's album had not even been released yet, but Dylan had gotten an advanced copy of it and loved it so much that he learned the songs and just showed up and played the Prine <laughs> at night. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, for Dylan, Goodman, and Christofferson to hail somebody's first album and songwriting ability says quite a lot. Um, in 2009, Dylan told the Huffington Post why he was drawn to Prine so strongly and considered him his favorite songwriter. He said, quote, Prine stuff is pure Proustian existentialism, Midwestern mind trips to the nth degree, and he writes beautiful songs. I remember when Chris, Chris, uh, Chris Christopherson first brought him on the scene. Sam Stone featuring the wonderfully evocative line, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes, and Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ died for nothing, I supposed. All that stuff about Sam Stone, the soldier junkie daddy, and Donald and Lydia where people make love from 10 miles away. Nobody but John Prine could write like that. So that's Bob Dylan saying that, which I, I would take as a stamp of approval, pretty much. Yeah, we've actually been talking about Dylan a lot he's in the last couple of weeks because he's got, he's, you know, one yeah, of the... Yeah, I, I, the you 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 know when you guys did the uh, protest the, the protest song episode a couple of weeks ago, um, the, uh, Dylan. It, it's like it's almost like you were doing an episode on Dylan, even though he's still alive, because he, he wrote so many and influenced so many other people to do the same thing. You know. Yeah. Well, he, we we did the protest songs, and then we did. There were like two other episodes where he was prominently featured. <laughs> sure. It was a segregation, segregation and uh, right. benefit concerts. Sure. Um, so Prime was nominated for the 1972 Best New Artist Award at the Grammys. 
now that that honor which has had a number of curious outcomes over the years <laughs> saw prine the eagles loggins and messina and harry chapin lose to america oh come on they did the soundtrack for the last unicorn <laughs> when Brian said, quote, whenever I ran into the Eagles through the years, they would lament, we should have written a horse with no name. Brian said. <laughs> and um, Harry Chapin was the other one? It was, it was uh, Prine, the Eagles, Loggins and Messina, Harry Chapin, and America, and America won. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, uh, unfortunately, before Prine's second record came out, his father passed away. Oh. Um, it, it definitely impacted him as he recalled in an interview I saw and you know for somebody who has lost their father it's, it's a heartbreaking thing to hear but he said he was at his dad's house and they were drinking a couple of beers and he played his dad some songs and he said quote and I didn't realize that I would never see my dad again when I left oh Jesus which that's that sounds like a <laughs> that has the makings of a fine country and western song of its own that's a gut punch yeah no kidding um, in 1972, Prine released his second album. It was called Diamonds in the Rough, which was recorded quickly and rather cheaply at Atlantic Records um, recording studios in New York City. Prine said the recording sessions took three days and cost $7,200, quote, including beer. <laughs> uh, it was even more stripped down than his first album, which y'all have heard two songs from it. That was pretty stripped down in its own respect. Um, and it featured a turn towards the bluegrass and the early country music that he loved. In the liner notes to Great Days, the John Prine anthology, Prine said, quote, I just wanted to do diamonds the way I, I was used to playing music at my house with Dave, his brother who plays dobro, banjo, and fiddle on the record, and Steve Goodman who played guitar and provided background vocals. But it's taken me years to figure out how to balance those first two records. About every other record after making a real studio a rock and roll album, I'd come back and do a Diamonds in the Rough. As already mentioned, two of the songs that made their way onto the album were written when Prine was 14. <laughs> he told American Songwriter Magazine how the frying pan and sour grapes ended up there. He said, quote, I had a girlfriend whose father was a janitor. And the reason I'm telling you that is because he had access to a tape recorder and nobody else I knew had one. They were really rare, a reel to reel. I sat down and taped three songs for this girl and her sister. And the three, the three songs were Frying Pan, Sour Grapes, and Twist and Shout. Years later, I ended up marrying that girl. She was my first wife. She found the tape. It was after I'd made the first album, so I put those songs on Diamonds in the Rough. And those were the first songs I remember writing. A notable song from the record was one called Souvenirs. Now, Prine actually intended for that to be on his debut album, but he'd already cut 12 songs when he got ready to record it, and the, the people pretty much just told him, eh, now you got 12, you're done. So this one kind of was a, a holdover. Uh, he wrote it once he got his low-paying gig at the Fifth Peg, where he got you know a quarter for everybody who showed up at the place. Many of the faces in the crowd didn't change week to week uh, prior to that Ebert review. Prine figured he needed to not play the same songs every week and should add to his repertoire. So he basically wrote that song driving to the club one day, rehearsed it in front of a bathroom mirror at the Fifth Peg once, and debuted it that night. Um, a line from that, all the snow has turned to water, Christmas days have come and gone. Broken toys and faded colors are all that's left to linger on. I hate graveyards and old pawn shops, for they always bring me to, to tears. 
I can't forgive the way they robbed me of my childhood souvenirs. Wrote that in his car, driving to the club. Jeez. Um, according that's to Prime's unfair. website. That is, that is, that's unfair. That yeah, just, at, that point, you're just, at that point, you're just showing off. Right. Um, according to Prime's website, the artist was told by Goodman that the song, Yes, I Guess They Ought to Name a Drink After You, had the potential to be a hit. He said, quote, I was going for a Hank Williams kind of song. Steve Goodwin always told me that if I'd taken another couple of minutes and put a chorus to the song, uh, there isn't any, I just put a tagline to every verse, that it would have been a hit country song. But I was set in my ways. Once a song was done, it was done. The Great Compromise is an anti-war song and a little bit of a protest song. Although the lyrics don't necessarily read that way, using a promiscuous girlfriend as a metaphor for America. In the liner notes to Great Days, Brian said, quote, the idea I had in mind that America was this girl you used to take to the drive-in movies. And then when you went to get popcorn, she turned around and screwed some guy in a foreign sports car. <laughs> he said, I really love America. I just don't know how to get there anymore, which is pretty deep. Um, the album had one cover song, that being a remake of the Carter family's Diamonds in the Rough, which ended up being the title cut. And Prine said he borrowed the melody from Jimmy Rogers' Treasures Untold for his song, The Late John Garfield Blues. In terms of chart success, his second album did about the same as its predecessor, getting to just number 148 on the Billboard chart. Critically, it was again well-received, with all music's William Ruhlman saying, quote, John Prine's second album, was a cut below his first, only because the debut was a classic and the follow-up was merely terrific. David Frick wrote that it was, quote, a superb collection of tunes and tales recorded with acoustic no-frills, living room ambiance. The Village Voice gave it an A-minus rating. Um, now let's step away from his albums for a minute and kind of get an idea of what a John Prine concert might have been like at this time. Prine, like a lot of kind of folk country artists at the time and singer songwriters in general played with no band. It was just he and his guitar on stage. He said clubs he played at would usually put a stool in front of a microphone since many musicians chose to sit while they played and sang. Prine would stand, but often use the stool as a place to sit a six pack of beer and his ashtray. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. It's kind of like Ron um, Wright, right? Right. But Ron Scott. I saw an interview with him where he said the other thing was at the point, at that point, he still didn't know how to properly tune a guitar. So he would sit there for up to 15 minutes, sometimes going bing, 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 bing. And he would just have to like bullshit and, and like tell stories to fill time. <laughs> he didn't know how to tune his guitar. Um, he was de uh, developing a dedicated fan base and that offered uh, featured fellow musicians and when he played in Chicago, comedians from Second City, including Bill Murray and John Belushi. How many times is the Bill Murray going to show up in this story? A couple of times. The latter of those, being John Belushi, actually lobbied to have Prine as a musical guest on the second season of Saturday Night Live when the Beach Boys, who were the scheduled musical act, were a late scratch. So he was actually on season two of Saturday Night Live as a musical guest. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay, here's the thing, though. I don't know if I would take suggestions from John Belushi, uh, John Belushi on musical guests because uh, he chose the musical guests for, like, the first season, and it was a punk rock group that ended up destroying the set. 
And then one of them might take a dump on the amp or something. <laughs> <laughs> it was like they did something like totally yeah. outlandish. You got to consider your source here. It was John Belushi making these suggestions. Yeah, right, right, so, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the last time you suggested that someone pooped on an amp. <laughs> so no, no, we can't have this John crime. I think a Canadian, Canadian Songbird and Murray did the same thing. <laughs> I've had I've had several handsome Johnnies. <laughs> See, the only reason why I know who Ann Murray is is because, you know, Grandma would uh, give up on me and go to bed and yep. let me watch TV, and Ann Murray would have those like albums. The Time Life music, com yes, the yes. Time Life commercials. She sure yes. did. The Time Life commercials, and I remember we stayed up until like two a.m. watching those because one of them was. Anne Murray, one of them was Kenny Rogers, and then Ray Stevens showed up. Yep. I know sure that every single year, my mother would play the Anne Murray Christmas album. <laughs> <laughs> every single year. Oh, God. Yeah. Was she friends with um, Sherry Lewis? Am I remembering that right? Do what now? Was Anne Murray friends with Sherry Lewis? Am I? Uh, sure, why not? <laughs> Y'all are sitting, uh, nobody can see this, so this is just a kind of a joke for the room. Y'all are sitting on a couch together, and I can't see Will's hand, so you're almost like his version of, like, you're like his lamb chop. Don't tell him where that hand is. Don't tell him where that hand is. It just goes on on, my friend. Hey, in 1973, Brian moved to Nashville. Um... By 1973, Prine had moved to Nashville, and he released his third album, Sweet Revenge. It contained a couple of classics like Mexican Home and Dear Abby, which was actually recorded live when Prine thought that the studio version was, quote, really stiff and humorless. Again, the reviews were positive. It was noted that he seemed more vocally confident, a bit more mature, and was developing a sense of cynicism. Uh, but again, the album did sell fairly modestly. In 1975, he put out the album Common Sense, which would be his most successful album commercially to that point. It actually hit number 66 on the Billboard chart. With contributions from Bonnie Ray, Glenn Fry, and Jackson Brown, and production by Steve Cropper of Booker T and the MGs fame, you would think that it would be a winner. Yeah. And Prine said, Prine said he came out of a Memphis studio with a good record. However, the book, John Prine, In Spite of Himself, uh, by author Eddie Huffman, said, quote, Cropper was moving into the rock and roll big leagues as a producer, working on Rod Stewart's next record around the same time. He decided Prine's album needed fleshing out. Despite the singer's reservations, Cropper took the tapes to Los Angeles and added the kinds of overdubs that Prine had said he wanted to avoid. So, although it reached a larger audience, reviews were sort of mixed on that one, with a major complaint being that Prine's lyrics got lost in the middle of a lot of noise that, you know, Cropper kind of laid on top. Um, Prine did mount his first tour of America and Canada with a full band that year, but he was growing disenchanted with Atlantic Records, which he didn't think seemed to get him or his music. So, he asked to be released from his contract. In fact, he went to Amet Erdogan, who was like a, a titan of the record industry, and pretty much said, y'all suck, and you don't know what to do with my music. I would like you to let me out of my contract. And, and Erdogan, to his everlasting credit, did uh, oblige him, and he let Prine out of his record contract. 
um, so he signed with Asylum Records, um, which was kind of seen as being a little bit more singer-songwriter friendly. He worked on his next album with his buddy, Cowboy Jack Clement. With some of Nashville's best session musicians, they hold up in Clement's attic studio round the clock six days a week. He told Rolling Stone in 2017, quote, we were high as dogs playing <laughs> some really good stuff. The problem, according to Prime, was they weren't getting the record that they were playing every day in the studio. He eventually turned to his friend Steve Goodman. The 1978 album Bruised Oranges wasn't a huge hit, but the critics got back on uh, Prime's side, and it featured 10 very well-received songs. The title track is another <laughs> complete like <laughs> hide the sharp instruments <laughs> tune about a, a real life tragedy from Prime's youth when a fellow church altar boy was hit by a commuter train. Ooh. Uh. Yeah. The song There She Goes seemed to allude to Prime's own crumbling marriage, which ended not too long after the album's release. There was also If You Don't Want My Love, which he co-wrote with legendary producer Phil Spector. Now, that seems like a very odd pairing, obviously. <laughs> um, but Prime told NPR's Terry Gross that one of his early champions was L.A. Times music critic Robert Hilburn. Prime ran into him um, and learned that Hilburn was writing a book with Spectre and was at his house every single night interviewing him. Hilburn told Prime that he should come up and meet uh, Spectre. Prime said he was reluctant at first because he doubted that Spectre would even know who he was. But Hilburn said that Spectre had actually quoted some John Prine lyrics to him during their interview. So Prine did come up, and Spectre played him an unreleased Leonard Cohen album that he was producing. Um, Prine described um, Spectre's house as, quote, like a circus show. Um, he said that his drink never got below half full, and he noted that Spectre's two bodyguards, one of whom was, quote, a swarthy skinny guy, and another that, quote, looked like Chewbacca Spectre's <laughs> um, He said that Spectre wore a three-piece suit at all times and a shoulder holster with a gun in it. Huh. As, Prime, as Prime went to leave that night, Spectre sat down at a piano near the front door and urged Prime to pick up an unplugged electric guitar. They wrote, if you don't want my love, in less than 30 minutes. <laughs> Six Ooh. months later... Prine, Prine came back and played a recorded version of the song for Spectre. Um, they started another song, again, as Prime went to leave, called God Only Knows. Now, Prine intended to finish the song later, but he had trouble doing so. He said that for years when he would go to do a new album, he would kind of circle back to it and go, you know what, I should, I should finish that song. And for some reason, he just he, he couldn't finish the song. He did eventually complete it, but once Spectre was in prison for murder, um, which uh, obviously most folks who follow music and celebrities are aware that Phil Spectre is in jail for murdering, was it his wife, LD? I think. Wife, right? Yeah. Bon, yeah, Bonnie, Bonnie Lee Bagley. Yeah. Right. I think that. I think that's right. Um, I just, I just he, remember like all the trial. The, the, I remember the trial. But I remember the trial more than and, I do. And the hair. Else, yeah. the hair. Yeah. The hair. All the, the hair. The, the, the hair and the face and the glasses are like burned into my retinas and will never leave me. Um, but the, the once Prine finished the, the song, it contained the line, if I should betray myself today, then God only knows the price you pay. 
He said he was, quote, shocked but not shocked by the murder allegations against Specter. He said, quote, he always had guns around and he was always waving them around, you know. I'm not exactly sure about how the whole thing happened, but that was the part I was not shocked about. Now, we're going to listen to, to um, the song God Only Knows, um, but I'm going to give everybody a little bit of a heads up. So this song, they started writing it in the very late 70s. Prime didn't finish it until 25 or so years later, and he didn't record it until then. By that time, John Prine had had a life event that negatively impacted his voice. Well, not, not necessarily negatively, but his voice was decidedly different. And I'm telling you that only because if you've heard the first two songs we did, and then you listen to this one, you're not going to think it's the same person. And we will get to why his voice sounded so different eventually. But just I'm just kind of giving you a heads up. This one doesn't sound like Paradise or Sam Stone. But this is uh, John Prine. It's a song he started writing with Phil Spector and finished once Phil Spector was in prison called God Only Knows. Okay, I will say before I start this song that uh, if I, I will lose my true crime card if I don't get this right. We actually looked it up. It was Lana Clarkson, not Bonnie Lee Bagley. So sorry okay. about that. It's Lana Clarkson that that he is he was sent to prison for murdering. So okay, that. Um, but here's the song. God only knows the price that you pay for the ones you hurt along the way. If I should betray myself today, then God only knows the price I pay. God only knows. I can't reveal the way that I feel, and God only knows the way I feel.
that true to the things that I say and the things that I do? And if that can't be true to the things that I do, then God only knows the way I feel. Okay, I got three things I got to say about that song. Okay. Number one, I actually like his voice a lot more in this one. He 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 liked his voice better once it changed, and we'll get into why it changed a little bit later. But he you he John Prine himself agreed with you. Yeah. Number two, it's very Lou Reedish. This mm-hmm. this. This song is very, very reminiscent of Lou Reed, especially like Take a Walk on the Wild Side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then number three, I would love to have heard the version that he wrote with Phil Spector because I feel like the difference between that one and what actually got laid down later in life right. probably would have been something like comparing Joni Mitchell's uh, love from both sides. Right. Um, I, th- I, I specifically think it's both sides now from Joni Mitchell, but other artists have revisited their songs from sure. when they were younger and they have changed differently. But like, I would have loved to have seen the difference between those two songs. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Uh, the only thing was it, it was, an, it was unfinished and I don't know if what, to what state it was unfinished or how much they wrote and laid down before, <laughs> literally before Prime's cab showed up that night and he had to leave. Yeah, um, but he, it it took him decades to finish the song. Um, what was interesting about this one is I know we earlier talked about his influences being kind of out of that grand old Opry. This sounds more like Hank Williams than any of the other stuff we listened to so far. Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, but you can also hear. First of all, the the voice is so much different. Oh yeah, <laughs> it I, doesn't I even sound it. like it doesn't sound like the same person. But but then. Just musically, it sounds completely different from anything we've we've played yeah. up till night. Well, it yeah. sounds a little bit richer and fuller, and I don't know if that's he finally gave into the mix. You know that you were you were saying like it's stripped down, right? And, and other stuff was played. This seems more professionally mixed with like overlays and things that he would have fought against initially. Right, because you can hear the background singers and strings and the and, and electric guitar, which we haven't heard much of on his early songs either. Right. So, um, so Prime did two more albums for Asylum Records. The first was 1979's Pink Cadillac. It was produced mainly by Knox and Jerry Phillips, and two tracks were produced by their dad, a fellow y'all might have heard of by by the name of Sam Phillips, the legendary founder of Sun Records. It marked a departure with Prine focusing much more on a rock sound and recording only five of his own songs, with the rest being made up of rock songs from his youth. Um, Rolling Stone reviewer David Marsh deemed it, quote, an almost unqualified disaster, and that Prine had never, quote, sung such a half-assed grab bag of songs. Uh, William Ruhlman, writing for All Music, was a little bit kinder, saying, Quote, Pink Cadillac was a good idea that went slightly awry in the execution. 
Brian said years later, though, that the album developed into a fan favorite over time. Uh, the next album was 1980s, more country-flavored Storm Windows, which was much more well-received by critics than its predecessor was. That was Prine's last album for Asylum, and in fact, it was his last record for any major label. He had begun to grow um, weary of dealing with record labels, and he had taken a dim view of what he saw as their exploitation of artists. So he formed his own label, and he was actually one of, he was a pioneer in this way. He was one of the first artists to form their own record label. He started Oh Boy Records in 1981 with his manager, Al Bonetta. Um, I should point out that his first manager was actually Paul Anka. <laughs> I just find it funny. Hmm. When when Christofferson showed up at um, uh, uh, the Earl of Old Town to, to hear him play, it was actually he, Steve Goodman, and Paul Anka. <laughs> and Anka was his first manager. But um, Prine's brother said that Anka basically just collected his manager's percentage and didn't really do much for him. Uh, and that Bonetta was much more street guy who, who Prine really liked and he kind of got Prine and he kind of, you know, he was a bare knuckle guy who got in and kind of fought for him and stuff. So they apparently got along really, really well and they formed this record label together. And the first release on the album was a red vinyl Christmas 45 that featured Prine singing, I saw mommy kissing Santa Claus and silver bells. Hey, yeah, for people huh. who don't, for people who don't know who Paul Anka is, he just put your head on my shoulders, puppy love, uh -huh. Diana, uh, and pennies from heaven. Like uh -huh. he, he was one of those like puppy dog producers. Sort of, like, yeah. Puppy love singers. That's what I'm trying yep. to say. Yep, yep. Um, Prime fans were so loyal, they mailed Oh Boy checks often with notes saying that the next Prine album could just be delivered to them in exchange for the money that they were sending him. <laughs> Enough was collected that Prine's recording sessions for 1984's album Aimless Love were completely paid for. Wow. Um, yeah. Now, that album did not chart at all, but that we have to put an asterisk on that. It was, a main, uh, it was available mainly via mail order and at Ernest Tubbs record store. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but Rolling Stone said, quote, John Prine, the elegant songwriter, is still in top form. Bob Dylan loved the song People Putting People Down So Much that he immediately began covering it in concert. Uh, Prine alleges that a mailman approached him after a show once and asked if he wanted to hear Dylan sing the song before handing him a bootleg cassette tape of a Dylan concert from Rome, Italy. Oh, my God. Prime biographer, uh, prime biographer Eddie Huffman called the song, quote, Unwed Fathers, the best since his debut, a character song that held its own with Sam Stone. Johnny Cash and Tammy Wynette actually did a duet remake of that song. Uh, you're um, pronouncing that name wrong. It's Wynette. Tammy Wynette. It's Tammy Wynette. Stand by Tammy your name. That's one, that's one of my favorite um, off the radar SNL bits ever. Which where they one? have Melanie Hutzel playing um, uh, Tammy Wynette as as um, Natalie Cole sit, quote sings the hits of her father's dead friends, <laughs> and she starts singing wow. "Stand By Your Man," and Tammy Wynette goes, "I am not dead." <laughs> this is how rumors get started, bitch. 
Oh man, you want to talk about oh, SNL? Yeah, like yeah. my favorite off the beat SNL skit is one that I don't think they'll ever show again. It's the Pasta Maker Five Thousand oh, because it's just it's Mike Myers gives this. It is so it is so un PC that is it is so hilarious. It is so ridiculously funny. But like Mike Myers, if you watch Mike Myers' face in that skit, it is the same <laughs> skit. It's the same face that he did when Kanye West. <laughs> yep. We're on <laughs> during Katrina. That's a hundred percent what it looks like. Yes, it is the same thing. It is, it is so horribly unpc. It is not. It's not. It would never fly now. You could. Nobody could ever write that or get it on. Uh, get get it an audience anywhere now. But, but back <laughs> but, in like 1992, that was. You could still get away with stuff like that in 1992. Yeah. And there's almost no part of it that we can relive right now. So nope. why don't we nope. instead listen Move to on. Unwed Fathers by John Fry <laughs> on Rock and Roll Heaven Podcast. Great segue. Wait, that's not the song. Okay. In Appalachian Greyhound Station she sits there waiting in a family way. Goodbye, brother. Tell mom I love her. Tell all the others I'll write someday. From a teenage lover to an unwed mother. Undercover Like some bad dream While unwed fathers They can't be fathers They're running like water Through a mountain stream In the cold and gray town A nurse says lay down this ain't no playground This ain't home Someone's children Out having children In a gray stone building All alone From a teenage lover To an unwed mother Kept under like some bad dream While unwed fathers They can't be bothered They're running like water Through a mountain spring Somewhere else bound Smoky Mountain Greyhound She bows her head down Humming lullaby Your daddy never Meant to hurt you ever You just don't live here But you got his eyes a teenage lover to an unwed mother kept under.
like some bad dream. Along with father, they can't be bothered. They're running like water to a mountain stream. Will they run like water? Okay, um, and for those wondering, the uh, the lady's voice that you hear is uh, Rachel Peter, who was actually Prime's second wife. Yeah, I was saying when we were listening to it, she sounds a lot like Kylie Minogue. She kind of does, which is weird since I don't think she was from Australia, but yeah. <laughs> um, so 1984 was a good year and a bad year for Prime. Uh, unfortunately, his friend Steve Goodman died at the, at the age of just 36 of leukemia. And I'm just going to encourage anybody who's never, who isn't all that familiar with Brian's work or with uh, Goodman's work, go, go look him up. He is, he was a brilliant songwriter. The dude wrote uh, City of New Orleans. He co-wrote You Never Even Call Me By My Name. Um, for sports fans, he co-wrote Go Cubs Go. That they play after Cubs. Hump. Yes, that, that's Steve Goodman. Wow. Um, and um, he wrote Door Number Three, which uh, Jimmy Buffett recorded on one of his early albums. He was fantastic, and he did what left way too early. Uh, but he died that year. Uh, but Prine did get married, this time to bassist Rachel Peter, who we just heard uh, co-singing that song with him. He told Rolling Stone, though, that uh, that marriage was, quote, doomed from the get-go. <laughs> he actually calls the 80s his bachelor years. Um, he would normally wake up around 3.30 in the afternoon. He'd go eat fried eggs and have his first beer of the day at Brown's Diner. Um, he'd play some video poker and hit a few bars with his buddies, Don Everly and Towns Van Zandt. Uh, then he'd go to the grocery store, and he would have dinner ready for his friends at 1 a.m. when he knew they would all be heading home from various nightclubs. Drugs were fairly prevalent. I know that's a shocker for musicians in the 80s. Um, particularly uh, cocaine and quaaludes. Oddly, given a song that Prime would inspire many uh, uh, many years later, he was not a huge fan of marijuana, and they said he never was, actually. Uh, real quick, um, so I can go back there. Was uh, Towns a uh, member of the Jacksonville Van Zants? Uh, no, no, not the no, no, not, not okay. Skinner Van Zants. Okay, okay, that's what I was checking on. Okay. Yeah, never got. Which, which um, one did I hang out with? Was it Little Stevie? Yeah, you met Steve Van Zandt, yeah. And that's, and, and yeah, that, and he's not related to Little Stevie either. You, you can see no, why, yes. Yeah. There's a number of Van Zandt uh, dining there, There's all kind of Van Zandt all over the place. I worked with one, apparently. I didn't even and know. Stevie, when, yeah. when did I work with Little Stevie? I don't remember this, but. You were with you worked with Little Stevie. That's pretty. That's pretty awesome. No, yeah, but awesome. when when did I work with Little Stevie? I know oh, I did. Wow. Like we talked. Sopranos. Sopranos. Yeah, that's Sopranos. Yeah, Sopranos. Yeah. When I was on Sopranos. I'm still okay. trying to get this one to watch it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I've never seen Sopranos, but apparently it, it's required okay. reading if you're from my state. My face is yeah. in the show, so yeah. Yeah. Um, in 1986, Prime put out the Grammy-nominated German Afternoon which uh, Time Magazine called the worst album title in the history of music. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a rootsy country record that featured contributions from Marty Stewart and New Grass Revival. Some of the songs were inspired by, or at least reflected, Prine's disintegrating marriage. 
producer Jim Rooney said, quote, John and Rachel were having a very up and down time of it, but the resulting songs might have been worth all the trouble. Yeah. Uh, stand, standout offerings include Speed of the Sound of Loneliness, which is very clearly about his marital situation at the time, if you listen to it. Uh, another song that would go on to be one of the biggest hits of Prime's career, though not his version of it, was I Just Want to Dance with You. George Strait mm-hmm. covered that in 1998, and it became a number one country hit. It was so that's probably Yeah. That's actually probably the biggest hit that Prime ever wrote. Um, because I mean, King George cut it. So, I mean, that just, <laughs> that, that, it's that kind of bigger. was like between like 1994 and 1997, 98. Country it was 98. Country had this weird resurgence of popularity in the mainstream. Like yeah, you right. had people that you had mm-hmm. country listeners listening to country. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Late night. Yeah, absolutely. You did. Sure. Pam, you had Pam Tillis coming out. You had, um, a future episode with uh, Mindy McCready. Uh, you had, did I shave my legs for this? What was her name? Dana Carter. Dana Carter. Nice. Uh, Neil McCoy. You had all of these like country well, yeah. stars making that crossover. You had, you had the like the late eighties. Um, the the what was it called? The class of eighty eight or eighty nine. It was Garth Brooks, Travis Tritt, Clint Black. All those, you know, all those guys, and that kind of carried forward for a while. And then you had like another group kind of bust out in the mid late nineties. Who, who you're talking about? The Dana Carter and people like that. Yeah. Not to go too far off, but man, I loved Randy Travis. Oh, Randy Travis is awesome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? You know who doesn't? Yeah, he's still around. Okay, good. Because yeah, Yeah, you know who doesn't love you know you know who doesn't love Randy Travis? Communists. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't like Forever and Ever Amen, I probably don't like you. I'm sorry. I know that you're a couple handsome gentlemen in. Um, did, uh, did you just call them communist? Communist. You, communist. Mean, you mean <laughs> communists? Like communists. Okay, you know what we're. Just you don't like Randy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, you, if you don't like on the other hand, you are a communist, and I probably wouldn't like you. Um, so Prime's marriage unfortunately ended in 1998 or 1988. But that same year, he met a lady named Fiona Whalen. Born in Ireland, Whalen would eventually become Prine's manager, and the two would wed in 1996 and remain married until Prine's uh, unfortunate demise. Uh, Prine released The Missing Years in 1991, then put out a John Prine Christmas in 1993, and Lost Dogs and Mixed Blessings in 1995. In 1998, however, Prine learned that he had developed cancer in his neck. He yeah. felt a lump. He felt a lump there, but he thought it was a, a bulging blood vessel. So literally, he he would just like shave around it and thought literally nothing of it for a long time. Oh. Um, he ended up having to have extensive surgery to remove diseased tissue and underwent weeks of radiation treatment. Ooh. The procedures left him with a slightly slumped head. It damaged nerve endings in his tongue and it damaged salivary glands. He required more than a year of therapy before he could sing again. And when he did so, his voice was lower and a bit more raspy, which we heard in the song God Only Knows, which you said you preferred LD, and he did too. Yeah, um, well, I mean, like, okay, you know when you get sick, like, you you have got years of radio behind you, like, years and years. You yep. know when you would get sick and you'd start healing, but there was that, like, three-day period where you had, like, a really gravelly voice, but it was it was cool 
It wasn't like yeah, well, thick. In, like in my case, like, when I get when I get uh, some kind of throat thing, it always makes my voice really deep. And so I instead of very white, I call myself very white. Yeah. <laughs> yep, he's been drinking. Uh, uh, yeah, no, there's like that three days where it's like sexy, cool, but like that's, yep. that's what John John's voice sounded like when I was like, I actually liked it more because it was deeper and it felt it felt older and more developed. If it, that it did any sense. Um, so he it so there he had a year and a half in between concerts. And when he goes to play his first one, post-recovery, he was unsure how the audience would take his new voice. But he said afterward, they were with me. Boy, were they with me. So his, his audience was very receptive to it. That's good. Uh, Prine adopted Fiona's son, Jody. And the two had two children of their own and sons, Jack and Tommy. So Prine became a father for the first time at age 48. Ah. Wow. Fiona said, that, but. <laughs> Fiona said that he was a very good father, uh, though he, he was obviously sometimes absent as he toured. He would invariably return with a suitcase full of toys for the boys and said it gave him a good excuse to go to toy stores, which he liked doing anyway. Oh. He Why released. He sound like a really nice all-around guy. Yeah, he, re, yeah, and he, it, you, you would have, you would be very hard-pressed to find anybody who would ever say anything bad about John Prine. If you, if you um, please go look, because I, I sure could. I, yeah. Um, he released In Spite of Ourselves in 1999 and Souvenirs in 2000. Then he took an unusually long break from recording before releasing Fair and Square in 2005. That one hit number 55 on the Billboard album charts and netted him his second Grammy win in the category of Best Contemporary Folk Album. He and Mac Weissman, who was in his 80s at the time, offered up an album of cover songs called Standard Songs for Average People in 2007. In 2013, Prine had a second bout with cancer. This time it was in one of his lungs. It was caught very early, which was owed to the regular tests and x-rays that he had following his first cancer battle. Part of his lung was removed, but because it was caught so early, no chemotherapy or radiation was necessary this time, he told CBS this morning. Uh, a friend who happened to be a personal trainer ended up concocting a very odd recovery therapy for Prime. He would have him run up and down a flight of stairs three times. Then he would throw him a guitar and make him pl uh, play two songs. And it wasn't the same two songs every time. Every time the guy would like literally throw a guitar at him and do and go like, Paradise, Sam Stone, sing them. And, and, and Prime, Prime would have to play those two songs while he was out of breath from running up and down the steps. Um, and it obviously worked that he was back on the road within a few months. Wow. Um, in 2016, at the suggestion of his wife, Prime released For Better or Worse. It was a duets album featuring covers of country classics with a number of female artists that Prime admired, including Miranda Lambert, Casey Musgraves, Amanda Shires, Leanne Womack, Allison Krauss, Susan Tedeschi, Kathy Matea, and Fiona Prime, his wife. At the time, it was the highest charting album of his career, reaching number 30 on the Billboard Hot 200 album charts. Prime and Fiona, who spent part of each year uh, at uh, a home in her native Ireland, as I mentioned earlier, took full ownership of Oh Boy Records when Prine's friend and former manager Al Bonetta passed away. 
Fiona then began to prod Prine into making a new record, with the main reason being, she told CBS this morning very bluntly, that, oh boy, needed some new Prine product to sell. Uh, Prine had continued to play shows, but had settled into a fairly laid-back lifestyle. He said he would generally sleep late every day, go to lunch at his favorite greasy meat and three restaurant, wash his car, shoot pool, and then look at cars online well into the night. He had an affinity for old Cadillacs, and he owned several, but he didn't pay much money for any of them. Um, he didn't realize how long it had been at that point since he'd released an album of new material. And he told her, hey, you know, I just did an album a few years ago. It had actually been 13 years since he had done an album of new material. So Fiona booked him a room at a hotel in Nashville, knowing that he likely wouldn't get any work done around the house, where he said he, quote, tried to look busy for a living. Um, and the result was 2018's The Tree of Forgiveness. As per usual, it received critical praise, and the album, along with two singles from it, were nominated for Grammy Awards, though they didn't win them, because, you know, people who vote for the Grammys are morons. Um, the Tree of Forgiveness uh, debuted Me. at number... The, the Tree of Forgiveness debuted at number five on the Billboard album chart, the highest chart position that John Prine ever achieved. Wow. Uh, Prine and those around him started to notice a couple of things about his concerts. One, the crowds were starting to get bigger and that they were starting to get considerably younger. Um, now, that could be owed to longtime fans passing down their love of Prine to their children. Or it could be that a number of younger artists who, who were very popular were extremely vocal in their praise of him, including Sturgill Simpson, Brandy Carlisle, Jason Isbell, Mark, uh, Margot Price, and Tyler Childers, Todd Snyder, and Casey Musgraves. He was extremely complimentary of that group, too. He, he loved all of those artists, and they loved him back. But they would talk him up in interviews and on stage about you know, well, you know well, why did you write such and such a song? Well, you know, because I listened to John Prine growing up. And, and, and I, I think that did start to make a difference, especially as a lot of the people I just mentioned, probably Casey Musgraves and Sturgill Simpson, especially because they were so popular, that I really think that started to make a real difference. But so this is, I don't even want to say that his career had a revival because Prine never really went away. But commercially and, and in terms of popularity, like he was riding an all-time high. His crowds had never been bigger. He had a, a lot of, of younger people showing up and he had just put out an album that, that hit the highest spot on Billboard any of his albums had ever hit in his 50 years of recording music. Um, the last person that I mentioned on that list was Casey Musgraves now, um, who I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of personally and, and John Prine absolutely loved um she actually wrote a song and you, you you guys may have heard it called burn one with john prine <laughs> prine, re prine recounted on cbs this morning that musgraves and one of her friends actually managed to meet him at a club and tried to convince him to share a joint with them out in the parking lot it was a literal bucket list item for casey musgraves to smoke a joint with john <laughs> which aim, aim high casey good for you <laughs> I mean, um, very specific. It's it, yeah, but that's what your that's what your bucket list is about, <laughs> man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, mine is with Willie Nelson, but whatever. Um, so um, he politely declined, partly because at this point he had, he had quit doing drugs. 
Um, he never really was much of a pothead anyway, and he said that he had a show to play that evening. Now, I, I'm going to note that that is per Prime's retelling. I read a story that recounted that the two of them were playing together on a cruise ship of some kind when she was an up-and-comer that nobody had heard of. And it, maybe it was, like, out on the deck. Like, you know, they had Isaac mix him a drink and... <laughs> Gopher was like, what is that strange smell? Well, they say that there's three sides to every story. There's your side, there's their side, and then there's the truth. Right. But whatever actually happened, um, Prine actually listened to the song Burn One with John Prine a few weeks later and was absolutely floored. He said not long after that, she, quote, became Casey Musgraves. Um, he remained an enthusiastic fan of, of hers until the end of his life. Snyder's first, Snyder's first record deal, and I know that you guys talked a little bit about Todd Snyder um, on the Based on a True Story episode a few weeks ago because he did the song uh, D.B. Cooper. Right. Um, his, his first record deal was actually with Oh Boy Records, and he, he referred to Prine as, quote, our Hank Williams. Huh. And yeah. if you listen, if you listen to some of Prine's songs, you can so hear the influence on Todd Snyder and Casey Musgraves and Sturgill Simpson and a lot of the people that I just mentioned. It, yeah. it is, it is, it is, it's, it's clear as day if you've listened to much Prine, how much he meant to those people and how much he influenced them. Well, okay, can I, can I just, uh, can I go off on a tangent for like two seconds? Is that, sure. That. Um, I think with like Todd Snyder and with John, you're you're missing one major element of what makes them who they are. Most singers songwriters will just pour out an emotion and mm-hmm. and say, you know, oh I love you, oh this is you know, but none of them are telling a cohesive story. Whereas John Prine tells a story. Like, sure. it is a storytelling. He's a singer-songwriter that's telling a story. It's not just explaining emotions or explaining, like, one single situation. Like, Unwed Fathers is telling a story. Sure. God only knows is telling a story. Uh, Paradise is telling a story. Like, these... You and have- and so, so is D.B. Cooper. Yeah, that's but what I'm saying. That's, that's what I'm saying. Like, in, sure. in, it harkens way back to, like, El Paso, you know, down yeah. in the West Texas, you have a story. And I think that's what sets them apart from a lot of singers now. And you, you don't none of them, none of them seek, none of them set out to write pretty little three minute pop songs. Yeah. They're just, they're just, they're just, they're just totally different people. Yeah. Snyder's like that. Prine's like that. Casey Musgraves is like that. Sturgill Simpson's like that. I mean, you, but but those those three in particular, to me, really carry that mantle that that Prine did of this the super literate songwriter who tells a story exactly like you're talking about. I, I completely agree with you. Yeah, you um, have a, a so snapshot th- of a singular moment in time right. where where something like yeah, I had never heard Todd Snyder till I listened to DB Cooper because I have an obsession with DB Cooper, and right. it 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 lays out that story and it's it's. I'm not disparaging three-minute pop songs that just talk about emotion. No, I like I like some of them very much, but 
but, they, but if you listen to Snyder do D.B. Cooper, if you listen to him sing Thin Wild Mercury, if you hear him sing America's Favorite Pastime, he probably doesn't write those songs if he didn't grow up listening to John Prine. Because those are those are 100% exactly what you're talking about. They are songs either about obscure um, characters in history, or they are. But but all of them are story songs, and most people just don't that don't have that gift because they're not they're not singing do why diddy, diddy dum diddy do. They're hey, singing. You will not you will not besmirch the good name of Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Earth Band in my presence. Do you hear me? We'll fight. Um, anyway, um, per Fiona, Prime did have a couple of eccentricities, as most artists do, and I think you'll, you'll enjoy these, L.D. Yeah. Um, he never traveled without a bottle of Heinz ketchup and a tube of Coleman spicy mustard. <laughs> okay, I, um, I, I, I refuse to travel without a jar of mayonnaise. A good, uh, Dukes, obviously, or, I, or I'm not well, kidding not have We don't have Dukes, but we had the Southern California version of that which is best okay yeah. all right as long as it as long as it's not that that spread stuff yeah um nope at one time the heater in prime's aquarium broke while he was on the road and he returned to find his pet goldfish dead Aww. distraught he took the body of his favorite fish a pound and a half goldfish and put it in his freezer and just left it there for several months he eventually had it mounted by a taxidermist and he hung it near his pool, a place he considered a prominent location. Was it, was it um, my dad's? Did my dad do it? I don't, I don't think so, um, but who knows? Um, Fiona said that Prine had many childlike qualities. He loved Christmas, and while he was single, he actually kept a Christmas tree up in his home year-round. He often had birthday cake and ice cream served after every one of his concerts, reasoning that, quote, it was always someone's birthday. <laughs> um, he drove himself to concerts and, and eschewed expensive catering for, quote, a $12 deli tray and a few six-packs. I, I can back this decision. I, we, um, we were actually going to talk about uh, we were, when we were still doing the opening acts, which, you know, we don't yeah. know that. We don't know what's happening with the opening acts yet. We'll figure that out eventually. But um, we were going to talk about writers. Like the the contracts that the the musicians have with their the the, gr the green M and M the brown M and M stuff right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and uh, I, that that see that's that would have been on the list is like because some of these people have insane writers yeah it's like are where are you gonna find forty eight white doves you weirdo uh, true okay true story a friend of mine went to um in, in anybody listening in south carolina will know what i'm talking about there's a, a a it's basically the walmart of beer in south carolina it's called greens oh, we, went there. we went greens there. discount there, right? beverages right yeah. okay so greens discount beverages so a friend of mine stopped in one time and was like hey you know because they always have um a good supply of shiner products and um a lot of times they'll have their seasonal brews and some other stuff. So a buddy of mine stopped in to just check out what they had and they had literally no shiner products. And he said, Hey, um, yeah, I'm just wondering, I, I was just checking, you know, y'all, I, I could, where's the shiner? You, you guys always have a lot of shiner. And, and the guy looked at him and said, um, have you ever heard of a singer named Robert Earl Keane? <laughs> and my buddy said, Oh yeah, I love Robert Earl Keane. He said, 
okay, well, he's playing at the Newberry Opera House tonight, which is right up the road from Columbia, from those who don't know. He said, and um, they sent a guy down here and, like, bought us out of Shiner because uh, I guess he drinks a lot of it. <laughs> How much Shiner so, are you going to drink, though? Jeez, incredible. Uh, all, all of it that they had at Green's that day. Oh, my God. Um, okay, here's another thing. Prime was a huge fan of Archie Comics. He he started <laughs> subscribing to, Ar- to to the Archie Comics when he was in his 30s. He said, he said, quote, I like that they put your age on there, he said to Rolling Stone. It would say, quote, to Johnny Prine, age 43. I like Jughead, mainly. He had this persona that he was shifty and lazy, but he always kind of knew what was going on. Prine um, did express a belief in God, and he considered himself a Christian, though he said he did not like seeing other Christians use the Bible uh, as, quote, a political weapon, particularly against gays and transsexuals. Um, his, his feeling was that, hey, you know, the Bible is a book of love and acceptance and peace and tolerance, so why would you weaponize it against anybody? See, um, that's, that, that just, you, you had me with the good songwriting and the eccentricities. You won yeah. me with that, because that's exactly right. That is exactly yeah. right. Um. In January of this year, Prine received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Sadly, it would stand as the last award that he would be able to accept. Uh, Fiona, his wife, actually tested positive for a strain of coronavirus in March and spent some time quarantined away from Prine. On March 26th, Prine was hospitalized after experiencing COVID-19 symptoms. On March 30th, uh, Fiona tweeted that she had recovered, but that Prine was uh, in stable condition, but unfortunately was not improving. Roger Waters was among the many that expressed support, saying, quote, our, John friend, our, our friend John Prine is in real trouble. This friend of ours is full of love and always has been his whole life. Love has always been a powerful drug. We love you with a genuine passion I can't even begin to describe. On April 6th, which was the wedding anniversary, for John and Fiona Prine, Fiona was called by a doctor and told she needed to rush to the hospital. She said in a subsequent B, uh, BBC interview that she felt like throwing up, but that she was by his side for the last 17 hours he spent on earth. Quote, he was in deep sedation and hooked up to all kinds of machines. I talked to him. I held his unresponsive hand. I sang and played messages from our boys and from his brothers. I played Iris DeMent, who was a friend and collaborator and a great singer singing gospel songs that she sent me that night just for him. I told him things I'd forgotten to tell him, things I had never told him. I told him that he was beloved by the world, that he had done wondrous things with his life. And in the end, I told him that my heart would break forever, but he could go on ahead and be with his mom and dad and his brother Doug and all those aunties that loved him. Mm -hmm. I told him I would be okay and I would hold our three boys close and that we would always talk about grandpa all the time with the little ones. On April 7th, John Prine died of COVID-19 complications at the age of 73. In accordance with his wishes, as expressed in the song Paradise we heard earlier, half of his ashes were scattered in Kentucky's Green River, and half were buried next to his parents in Chicago. Friends and fellow musicians honored the the legend, and perhaps the most visceral reaction came from Shooter Jennings. Um, Now, for those who aren't familiar, like his parents, Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter, Jennings is a musician. And a lot like his late father, Shooter is not much of one for holding his tongue. <laughs> so right in the wake of John Prine dying, um, Shooter tweeted, quote, there better be a rain. Oh, 
can I stop for a second and yeah. issue a parental warning? If you have if you have young ones listening, uh, cut us down for like thirty seconds because we're going to veer into some not nice territory for for just a minute. I'll so give skip, you a second. Skip ahead. And, skip ahead about forty five seconds because TJ talks slow. Okay, here we go. There better be a rain of redneck hell gonna pour down on the bastards that made this virus that took John Prine from us. I'm fucking pissed and very saddened by the loss of an American icon, Jennings tweeted. Um, he took that down um, because he said it was written in anger and that the replies became, quote, polarizing and political, which was not his intention. Really, somebody's tweet became political, I'm shocked. Yeah. Um, he said that Prine's death hurt him and that um, his words, quote, changed my perspective and calmed my emotions. Uh, quote, my dad used to crank, I ain't hurting nobody in his car. I remember the first time he heard it. We were in the car on Lightning 100 in Nashville. We went to the mall and bought the tape immediately. He didn't let it go for months. That song always made me think of my dad. I had the opportunity to tell Mr. Prine this the first time I met him. He was just the best. Again, in my hurt, I lashed out looking to blame this pandemic, but I know that we all have a time and place to move on into the great beyond, and this was his. At least we are all at home and we can use this time to celebrate Mr. Prine and thank him. R.I.P. John Prine. Okay, now, am I the only person that is amused by the idea of Waylon Jennings wandering around a mall, like, bopping into the food port, like, the food court? <laughs> he walks up to, like, a Sparrow's. Hey, Hoss, um, where's the tire records at? The Orange Julius? <laughs> yeah, he goes to Orange Julius. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, it's a long time since I've been to a mall. Did you know they got one whole store sells nothing but ladies' panty drawers? <laughs> Victoria ain't got many secrets left, Hoss. Um, I will that's say my, that's that, my idea of Waylon, like in a mall. Um, I will um, say that Casey Musgrave didn't really say anything about John's death, except for on April the seventh, she simply uh, tweeted one word, which was heartbroken. Yeah, and we'll get to her in just a second. Stephen Colbert held what amounted to an on-air wake for Prime that featured Dave Matthews and Brandy Carlisle. Bruce Springsteen tweeted that he was quote crushed, saying. John and I were New Dillons together in the early 70s, and he was never anything but the loveliest guy in the world, a true national treasure and a songwriter for the ages. We send our love and prayers to his family. Bette Midler was so distraught over the death of her friend, she couldn't muster much more than a tweet that contained Prine's picture and the words, he's gone. Seth Meyers said, quote, no one wrote songs about humankind with more grace and wit. To quote him, he was in heaven before he died. Musgraves honored him with a number, uh, honored him a number of times, including with "Burning One," with uh, "Burning One with You or Not." You fulfilled my bucket list a million times over, but I'm not gonna lie, I'm still holding out. She said she'd seen her dad cry twice in her life: once when my mama died, and once when I got to sing with John Prine. No. Picture Show was an online tribute concert. Um, because we have to do everything virtually now <laughs> because of the stupid virus, um, featuring a number of people that I've already mentioned, uh, Casey Musgraves, Jason Isbell, uh, Shires, Carlisle, along with Vince Gill, Bonnie Ray, Kevin Bacon, Kira Sedgwick, Billy Bob Thornton, and Bill Murray. Murray said at one point he was in, quote, a funk, although not an actual depression, that was robbing him of all his enjoyment. <laughs> and this is like the, the most name-dropping story I could possibly tell but his friend 
gonzo journalist and author Hunter S. Thompson oh. told, him that he should, told him that he should listen to John Prine music. He <laughs> did, and that that did the trick. Um, the special featured a never-before-seen uh, archival footage, some uh, never-before-seen archival footage of Prine discussing his signature cocktail, a handsome Johnny, which I've had enough of. How many have you had? Um, it is comprised of uh, the exact recipe is you fill a cocktail glass with ginger ale, then pour in some, or, or with uh, vodka, add some ginger ale, then drop in a wedge of lime or lemon from exactly six inches above the glass, but don't squeeze it. That's it. And it does make it and better. How many have I don't you know had? why it does. I don't see that as being any of your business. <laughs> um, uh, I'm also, your sister, and this is a business endeavor, sir. Uh, a new prime song was also debuted <laughs> during that special called I Remember Everything. Um, among the most poignant tributes, though, was one from Elvis Costello. He said that he discovered Prime when he happened onto a 45 in a Liverpool record bin that contained Sam Stone on one side and Paradise on the other. He wondered what kind of art that Prime might have created out of the pandemic that claimed his life. He said listeners might want to hear songwriters, quote, loudly sound the alarm or, quote, lampoon hucksterism, but said Prime would have written about, quote, an exhausted nurse quarantined in her own attic away from her frightened children, or an ode to the fruit picker who puts the strawberry on our Sunday tart, or the delivery driver or shelf filler who makes sure there's food to purchase for someone to put on the family table, because these seem like scenarios or portraits that might be found in his catalog. Writing songs like that would, of course, require someone with a lot of empathy, and probably it would have required John Prime. And that's all I wrote. Oh, that was really good, T. Thank you. That was that was good. Are you going to be joining us next week when we talk about Joe Diffie? Absolutely. I'm a former country music disc jockey, and I'm looking forward to talking about Mr. Diffie. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, just to wrap up, guys, uh, again, thank you so much for stepping in thank you and and i and i know you mention this every week but it kind of goes without saying if we're talking about somebody like john prine who had a 50-year music career and is revered as one of the greatest songwriters ever anything we could talk we could do a 10-hour podcast and we're just scratching the surface yep so a hundred percent please go listen to his music please read the stories please go find interviews about him and performances because there's only so much we can do in any podcast and there's a, a million things we left out, but we just kind of want to give you a little thumbnail and hopefully you found what we presented to you interesting and you'll want to go uh, either rediscover his work if you haven't listened to him in a while or find it for the first time if you haven't. Yeah, he sounds, you know, I, he just sounds personally like a guy you could sit down and have a good conversation with and he'd probably stay up until like two or three in the morning just talking to you. And, and I'm, I'm going to tell you a couple of great sources for this story. One, uh, and it is on YouTube, it's an interview I think Scott Pelley did for CBS This Morning. When they feature people like that, you know, they'll, you'll see five or ten minutes of the interview. Well, they, they, there's actually an hour and a half interview that you can find on YouTube, and, and that's fantastic. There's one of Peter Cooper, who I've mentioned a couple of times, interviewing he and Bill Murray that you can find on YouTube, which is great. And then there was an, about an hour and a half sit down, pick, sing, talk with he and Sturgill Simpson, 
uh, which was a, a which was related in some way to the Grammys. But all those are are, are just fantastic, and they give they just give you such a great picture of who he was. He's so humble and such a funny guy, and so oh shucks, yeah, I wrote a little song, and it's uh, just a little thing I threw together driving to the club one night, and you're like, I would give my left, <laughs> you know what, to be able to write anything close to that. So. Uh, check those out and just uh, just his music and his work and then we're going to hear probably his best known song as we leave here in just a second yeah so if you guys think that we're doing a good job uh you can donate money i know times are tough so seriously like only do it if you're in a good place and that's you can do that at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven you can find us on twitter at rock and roll heaven lt our instagram is rock and roll heaven lt facebook rock and roll heaven pod our website i'm still not saying it uh, you can email me at rockandrollheavenlt at gmail.com with any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions. Do not worry, guys. Uh, I have three suggestions that are in the pipeline. Don't worry. We are going to be getting to those soon. And uh, you guys should check out, what are you doing, Travis? I've got a, got a system here. My wife brought me ice cream. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then you can check out the other awesome uh, Pantheon podcast at uh, rockandrollarchaeology.com or wherever you find amazing podcasts. Uh, check us out next week when we are going to be talking about Joe Diffie, the pickup man who is being propped up beside the jukebox right now. Uh, I'd like to thank my cohorts, uh, Mr. Will the Thrill Hickey. Yay, thank you. Why are you waving? Uh, to the audience? I don't know. <laughs> you, this is not a visual medium. <laughs> it's, it's a thought that counts. Uh, how many handsome how many handsome Johnnies did he have? Uh, not enough. I'm gonna, uh, I'm, gonna wave, wagon. I'm gonna wave to all the I'm gonna wave to all the people in podcast land. <laughs> they can see me, they know. Oh god. And then we have TJ2. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank all right, guys. I'm LD and I will talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Okay. You suck. You suck more.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 